0: Well, good evening. Welcome to the London School of Economics. Um, can you all hear me? That's the first. Not very well. I'll, I'll speak more cl- How about now? Is that better? No. Oh. Um, I think the only way is I'm going to have to speak loud. Can you hear me now? Okay. Um, my name is John Gray. Uh, until I retired from academic life, I was professor of European thought at the London School of Economics and I'm going to be moderating tonight's dialogue, which will be partly between myself and um, Pankaj Mishra, seated next to me, and partly with yourselves. What we propose to do is he and I will talk for, um, discuss his new book uh, for maybe about 40 minutes and then you'll have 45 or 50 minutes yourself. Yourselves to um, ask uh, questions and um, have a dialogue with the author. Um, perhaps I can begin by saying that um, one of the things I noted when I was at the LSC, ten very happy years, is um, that it's a truly global institution. One of the most global institutions, of course. In a, I don't have to repeat the cliché. In one of the most globalised cities in the world, but the LSE is genuinely global. And what Pankaj Mishra's book is examining I think uh, is the ways in which um, the world we have today in which European and Western primacy have ended or are ending is rooted in the history of the West and of non-Western countries um, in the last uh, century and in particular in the way in which Western ideas were accepted or rejected or modified in non-Western countries. And of course, just to anticipate, one of the features of the book is he doesn't assume that what the West is and what the non-West is is fixed. It changes over time. Um, But he's concerned to analyse that process. And I admire the book greatly, as I've um, said in various contexts. And one of the reasons I admire it is Uh, it seems to me to be to pierce the myths the historical and other myths that have actually grown up in the West and in non-Western countries it's a myth a demystifying book in many ways and therefore for that reason not a comforting book but um, I'll now turn to Pankaj who's written earlier books on similar themes including a very interesting book called The Temptation of the West who's a a novelist, as well as a critic and, and an historian, and maybe just begin by asking the most obvious question, but it's the one I'd love to to ask: is um, why did you write this book now? Thank you, John. Can you all hear me?
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: oh, oh, I'm sorry about that. Can we do something about that? If we switch this off, would that be?
0: slightly better mm-hmm. uh, before we before we switch it off can I I forgot to mention if any of you want to tweet as we're going along there is a there is a hashtag there tweet a, a tweet hashtag which is hashtag hashtag LSE Mishra okay <laughs> whatever that means um <laughs> I'm not a
1: tweeter um but I'm learning a few things uh, to answer your question, I, there were several several things um, that went into... Um, I mean, several reasons why I wrote this book. But um, I think the most important one was that uh, not being able to find a place for um, these very long, complicated histories of places like India and China in the dominant narratives of our time, which are uh, narratives essentially with the West at its centre, at their centre, are histories of essentially of Western modernity in which every other country is um, given a certain kind of ranking as it were you know you're number two you're number three catching you're up catching up catching up um, and, uh, and even the sort of nationalist histories that I grew up on in India and indeed that's been the experience of a lot of other people from um, Asian countries they had very little space for some of these figures that i write about in the book people who were not necessarily leaders or uh, the most important nationalist figures in their respective countries but they were in many cases marginal figures they were poets they were mystics they were eccentrics but they were they were the first people to respond to the challenge that this very unique challenge that the west posed to their societies and these people, some like Liang Chichew, for instance, or Jamaluddin al afghani, uh, were very hard to find because they were cosmopolitan figures, particularly al afghani. so they belong to many particular histories, very many particular national histories. but it was very hard to find them in any uh, larger narrative about the world we live in um, so I, I wanted to sort of write a history of this particular. or or an account of this particular cosmopolitan moment in Asia where these people were trying to formulate a response to Western imperialism, to Western modernity, and also talking to each other, learning from each other, learning from Japan. Japan uh, plays a very crucial role in this story. Um, And I think really to sort of create another space for these histories, these cosmopolitan figures to be discussed and the challenges they... They, they confronted the challenges to which uh, they and the people who came after them then then sort of responded to by building uh, anti-colonial movements, by building uh, post-colonial states, uh, you know, proper state-building programs, and then that's that's another history altogether. That is, of course, extremely well represented in in, in nationalist histories, but these people were being were being left out uh, from both the history of the West, the history of
0: Western modernity
1: and the histories of of
0: nation-states. And the the various different intellectual and cultural leaders you discussed, um, Egyptian, uh, Indian, Chinese, Japanese, and others, am I right in saying that they regarded the challenge of the West as not only um, one of exploitation and of an imperial power, military and other power, but as a kind of cultural... Challenge to the very foundations of their own societies, a danger to their own societies beyond the economic and the military. Absolutely,
1: um, I think the the sort of the story of the overt exploitation and the violence and the and the terror uh, that's actually a very small part of this of this narrative, um, and, and this book doesn't contain too many details of various atrocities or or, or various uh, crimes committed during the course of uh, the European subjugation of Asia. But what was more important, and and, and as you say, a challenge that was felt uh, at a very (coughs) profound level, was that this whole uh, idea of, 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 this whole model, this whole social, political, economic model that the West had brought with itself, and that posed a challenge to these older societies Uh, was something that really threatened to uproot millions of people, hundreds of millions of people in these societies. Uh, And and, and to boil it down in in, in very sort of simple terms, the uh, basic assumption of this particular socioeconomic model, the autonomous, the self-motivated, the self-directed individual, this was uh, an extraordinary challenge for... Societies which were largely communitarian in in their orientation, where the idea of the individual, um, the the sort of self seeking, to to take it further, the the profit maximizing individual, wasn't so well advanced. Um, This was the profoundest challenge that uh, now everything, economic arrangements, our political arrangements, our social arrangements, have to be built around this 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 model of the individual of of satisfying his or her desires of his or her needs, and uh, this at, at a very profound philosophical level was 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 really the greatest challenge for them that um, you know now we have to kind of overturn centuries of um, our, our existence, which is based upon other principles altogether and this was a challenge as much as for people living in Muslim society as for people living in societies which had been directed for a long time by value systems derived from confucianism or buddhism um and in in that sense uh, it was it was really a, a much 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 more serious and and deeper challenge than that posed by just you know well equipped militaries and 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 for sort of better firepower
0: i w- and they didn't all agree these um cultural and uh, intellectual leaders at all because I was very struck by some of the quotations you give of um, intellectuals in China, for example, who one of whom you quote as saying, I'm entirely ready for the traditions and cultural inheritance of China to disappear completely if that's the price we have to pay not to be entirely dominated by the West. In other words, if the price we have to pay in order to resist the West is to become like the West. I'll pay it. So some thought that way, and others, like Aurobindo uh, in, uh, sorry, Tagore in India, who visited China, and you describe his visit, he was widely criticized, even attacked in China, because he thought that he did want to resist the influence of the West and the power of the West and the exploitation and the domination of the West, Western imperialism in the simplest sense but he was concerned, he was anxious that a great deal could be lost by that, so there were deep divisions among these intellectuals weren't there? Absolutely, particularly
1: for the, for the, for the first generation um, which was still closer to older ways of being and, 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 and feeling and I think Chagor is actually a fascinating mm. instance because you know, he is, uh, if you measure his influence politically today it's practically uh, non-existent but I think he's, as, as, as I said before, I mean, mar- it's marginal figures who often illuminate a larger uh, political and, and, and sort of uh, uh, social situation. And I think his journey, the way in which he was attacked, um, viciously attacked in, in China by, by budding communists um, at that time, and then of the way he was then marginalized uh, within India, uh, she really shows us how uh, the people who were attacking him, what they were saying was we, we don 't need uh, you know what you 're telling us about Confucianism or about the greatness of our old traditions we 've been so uh, humiliated by the west we 've been so utterly defeated uh, and, and it 's a kind of defeat uh, that's not it 's not just military defeat it 's spiritual defeat it 's moral defeat that the only way we can regain our dignity." Is by you know having a hardline party that organizes a mass movement that then goes on to create a strong nation state, and you know please go away to India. You are from a country that's been now occupied by foreigners for decades, if not centuries, and it's 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 a pathetic little place. And we have no, uh, we we can't allow you to you know give your speeches to impressionable Chinese. You you're going to corrupt them. Uh, And and there are a lot of people, even within China at that point, who are conducting this debate with the the sort of uh, very young members of the then uh, extremely uh, young Communist Party. That you know, where you're taking China, this is going to be this is going to be disastrous, and we cannot, you know, that many hundreds of millions of people cannot adopt uh, these ways of the West without uh, creating a completely untenable situation for future generations to come. I mean, extremely mm. prophetic words uh, uh, and, and Tagore is also a prophet in that sense as, mm. as in, in, in sort of seeing really where all this was going. Um, so I, I, I think in, in, in that sense, uh, focusing on, on, on marginal figures mm. like that, people who were in the end losers of history mm. rather than the winners um, uh, in, in, in sort of clarifies our situation so much more clearly
0: especially since, as you say, some of the um, uh, predictions or um, um, intuitions of these marginal figures seem to have been at least partly borne out by events. Um, I mean, would you agree that, I mean, interesting question, which is, is ans- partly answered in your book, is that when people attacked tao in China and elsewhere um, and said, we need to emulate the West, emulate its forms of government, its forms of organization its forms of power if we're not to be destroyed by it completely and remain forever under the western heel uh, when they became communists or marxists were they aware that they were adopting a western ideology I mean was that actually a process of westernization for them that's to say uh, um, it sa- when one reads them it sort of sounds like that that they were adopting what they saw as a hypermodern, hyper western ideology in order to defeat the West at its own game? Well, I think they would
1: probably present it as something they were getting from the Russians, mm. who were also supposedly, in the language used at that time, an Asiatic country, mm. which was also an agrarian country and which was trying to um, mm. industrialize and modernize and, and become mm. strong again against, mm. uh, against, against mm. Western powers. Uh, and the Russian Revolution, for a lot of them, was a, was a model of that sort. But
0: paradoxically, uh, you begin the book with the Battle of Tsushima, when the Japanese Navy destroyed the Russian Imperial Navy in um, 1905. And at that time, that's to say before the Bolshevik Revolution, um, they were perceived as a European power. Absolutely. In Asia. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. something had happened in between.
1: Something had happened, and also what happened was that Lenin, when he came to power... Cancelled all the special concessions uh, Tsarist Russia had acquired in China, mm. so that made him seem mm. particularly sympathetic mm. to to the mm. to the Chinese, and he also made a lot of noises about how you know people all across Asia have to rise if we are to liberate ourselves from the from the tyranny of uh, Western imperialism. So they the Russians became extremely attractive to mm. a whole generation of um, Chinese um, <coughs> activists. A lot of them went to Moscow mm. as early as 1920. Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang Kai-shek. And, and the Russians, of course, came and, and the, the set up uh, academies, military academies, where a lot of the major figures of the uh, Chinese nationalist movement were were then trained, including including Chiang Kai-shek. But there was, um, I think, they thought of themselves, and Ma- Mao, I think, in particular, thought of them- himself as, uh, in many ways, giving... Mm. Marxism or, or turning Marxism Marxism into something with Chinese characteristics mm. Mm. Uh, because Marxism hadn't really theorized about revolution in an agrarian country and he was uh, in, 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 in almost the first person, I mean the Russian revolution in sense was very much imposed from above but he was actually create, trying to create a revolutionary army in the countryside um, and uh, then encircled the cities, I mean that, that whole sort of theory of uh, Guerrilla warfare and how how we how we uh, capture state power, which is which is still being uh, used in, in in various parts of the world, um, that to him was uh, much much more important. Um, but it was I mean it was in, in objectively speaking it was very much a an ideology with its origins in the West, mm. and the interpretation they uh, applied to Chinese society uh, mm. that is essentially feudal and various other uh, concepts that they borrowed from uh, Western Marxism were deeply flawed, mm. and that led to um, you know, the kind of disasters we saw after the Chinese took, after the Communists took uh, power in 1949, uh, where one um,
0: misinterpretation after another led to uh, major, major calamities. Mm. Now, I mean, your book's a book of history and a book of biography. Uh, on the biographical side, focusing on people uh, on intellectuals who as you say are marginal so many people won't have heard of it retells many of the historical episodes of the late 19th century and the first half of the 20th century but it's also intended and I'm sure does um, illuminate aspects of the situation we're in now because now of course there isn't although technically the uh, Chinese regime is is the People's Republic of China it still owes allegiance to the Maoist inheritance, it is in other respects a version of capitalism a, a tough version, India has evolved in some respects in a, uh, in a capitalist way what does the analysis of the book and these, these marginal but some, some, uh, in some cases prophetic figures what do they tell us about our situation now and in the future that we can, um, f- that we can discern now
1: think there's sort of, I mean, someone like Tagore, for instance, um, who uh, was extremely clear-sighted in um, describing the dangers of nationalism or of uh, building a heavily armed nation-state along the lines that Japan was doing in the early 20th century. And in many ways, his warnings have been borne out by, in, in fact, the country that he that he belonged to, where so much National energy, national resources have gone into holding on to the territory of the nation state, of uh, keeping various minorities uh, under an iron heel, um, to 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 the to the considerable detriment of various other things uh, such as health and public health, education, um, all, all all kinds of things that should have been done.
0: In India. In India. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and uh, in 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 a in a place like China, I think. Liang because he was so obsessed with the idea of China this very weak empire full of uh, people who really didn't think of themselves as citizens of China who were uh, who belonged to this very disparate this very um, sort of scattered population uh, which had no sense of nationality and that we I mean, his his sort of great imperative was that we need to we need to uh, strengthen ourselves internally, and I think he was also more exposed in some ways than than Nehru to the power of the West. He travelled to um, America, and his, his his accounts of America are fascinating about how uh, America at that moment is breaking free of uh, this this sort of society it had been for a long time uh, a smallish pre-industrial society it was coming into its own, looking for Investments, business opportunities for its, for its investors and businessmen around the world, and flexing its muscles in, in, in East Asia and uh, elsewhere, and Latin America, of course. So Liang realized that uh, China had to build up uh, a comparable industrial strength. Uh, and in that, I mean, this is something he shared with his, his his communist critics too, and one of the things he said, which is proven to be true, is that uh, what we need to really concentrate on is uh, state capitalism we need to encourage our, um, uh, our our businessmen, our big industries to be internationally competitive, and the state has a role to play in this, um, and that everything else should be basically uh, uh, sort of, of secondary consideration that this is the most important thing China can do because the world we are living in all the businessmen of respective countries are backed by state power um, and in in America, in, in, Germany, America in, in Germany, in, in Britain. Uh, of course, uh, China directly suffered yes. uh, during the opium war uh, and, and directly witnessed the power of businessmen backed by powerful political lobbies back in London. Mm. Um, so that lesson he had absorbed, and uh, he, was a, he was actually a critic of socialism. He thought socialism doesn't work and won't work in, in, in China. Um, and that particular um, insight of his, which was finally realized mm. after several decades. So it's very interesting to look at that particular moment when he's kind of uh, observing the world he's living in and saying what does China need to do and to to see then over over decades mm. over several disasters, over several uh, missteps mm. uh, and, and, and calamities, how China then arrives at that particular, mm. particular solution, adopts a model of state capitalism which in many ways uh, resembles quite a bit that of uh, Japan. Uh, yes, th- this is how Japan also started in in the late 19th century by uh, encouraging a, a close nexus between between the state and and, and, um, and industry. Um, so there, there are many ways in which um, these people sort of illuminate and and throw light on the world we are living in, and, and also show how the history of modernity is not this one singular history of the West or, or of the West of Western modernity that. Countries and and nation-states have evolved uh, different models of it. Hmm. Uh, Models that work for them may not work for other countries or other peoples, but certainly uh, something quite well-suited to their own circumstances.
0: One of the things I found most valuable in the book is the way it uh, dislodges this um, uh, discourse, which has been uh, common in the last 10 or 15 years, uh, of the West versus the rest uh, because although it's an account of the interaction of East and West one of the implications of the book is that the conflicts that might shape the next couple of generations may not be between the West and non-Western countries at all they might be among what we think of as what are now thought of as non-Western countries and that I think that's one of the that's perhaps you could say something about like that because that's one of the respects in which your analysis, particularly towards the end of the book, contains uh, possible warnings of dangers ahead?
1: Well, because I mean, I think what we've done um, in, in, in large parts of Asia is repeat this particular and, and quite tragic journey of, uh, of, of, of sort of, uh, of modernity really, in the sense that here are all these countries in, in Europe uh, trying to modernize, trying to Catch up uh, with with England, of course, in the first instance, and then uh, competing for resources and territories around the world and then of course, you have this extraordinary bloody twentieth century uh, which after which you have uh, the rise of uh, post colonial Asia, and you have again nation states modeling themselves on uh, the Western model. And now, after about 50, 60 years, we see them again doing the same thing, competing for resources around the world. It's China in Africa, the Indians in Latin America, uh, desperately uh, running to, to find uh, new commodities, uh, sort of trouble free uh, sources of energy supply for, for themselves. Water, uh, which is now becoming a, a, a big problem. Both in both in uh, Southeast Asia and South South Asia, and it's hard not to imagine uh, a scenario where these countries fight the kind of wars um, that we saw that we that we witnessed in the last century, in the century previous to that, because they haven't actually evolved, they haven't formulated uh, a convincing answer to the particular um, social um, and, and, and political and economic models mm-hmm. that was first suggested to them and f- actually in, in many ways uh, forced upon them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's sort of, in, in many ways it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tragic tale, mm-hmm. um, it's not really uh, about the rise of Asia, or, or uh, there's, there's nothing triumphalist about that. Um, mm. the, the rise of Asia could be... Uh,
0: You're not opposing one triumphalism against another at not all. Not at
1: all, no, no, no. I think uh, that, that's absolutely uh, the wrong way to look at mm. it. Um, and it's, it's being actually blind to actuality. It's, it's being blind to the world we are living in, which is uh, not only full of conflicts, but portends uh, many more conflicts in the future. Uh, not to mention the fact that it's historically inaccurate mm. in, 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 in many, many many significant uh, aspects. Uh, the fact that the West is not this unitary mm. construction and that the, 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 the rise of the West was premised mm. on a great deal on what happened in the East, uh, mm. and this is not something that happened uniquely within the territory we define as the West.
0: Uh, and also as you bring out that, uh, the, the um, up till a couple of hundred years ago, um, non-Western countries were economically and in other respects more vital and advanced Absolutely. than Western ones so what's happening from, to the West is simply a reversion to a longer historical normalcy and yet it seems to be adamantly denied I mean my own experience in America is that uh, in America the argument is our decline is entirely self-inflicted which implies we can reverse it at will We just had. In other words, nothing to do with the emergence of these, the re-emergence of these other powers. Nothing to do with that. It's simply that we've made a series of mistakes, and so there's denial there. But I suppose there could equally be denial and in on among Asian elites. Well, I I suppose the good thing about
1: the Asian elites is that there are a lot of um, bad examples, bad cautionary (laughs) tales out there for uh, them to learn from. Mm. Um, Whereas uh, you know the situation described in America, or even to a certain extent here, mm-hmm. uh, is very much a case of being struck in a time warp. Yes, uh, people haven't really moved on. People haven't. Uh, it sounds horribly condescending. We haven't opened their eyes. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's 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 a different world out there. Mm-hmm. And to you know remain uh, to 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 strike these kind of uh, neo-imperialist postures at this moment is just uh, ludicrous apart, mm. from, apart from everything else. So it's, it's I think, uh, what has happened, um, this is a much larger subject, but we've, there's a kind of political culture that we've seen in the last 10 years, which has allowed um, people to wage wars, uh, political leaders to uh, strike these imperial postures. For the bankers to, to, to go berserk, uh, we've seen all kinds of things happen. One of the things we haven't really looked at, what has happened to intellectual culture in, 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 in Anglo-America, mm. uh, where uh, all kinds of fantasies have prevailed, quite like the ones that allowed you know, the CDS or something like CDS to become a great financial innovation. Mm. Um, I think similar disasters and calamities have occurred in in our intellectual life, and we haven't really quite focused on them yet. But uh, they're part of the same syndrome uh, of this uh, this this weirdly right wing, and right wing is probably dignifying it weirdly reactionary um, sort of political culture that we mm. that we've seen in the last decade.
0: Mm-hmm. But I mean, the the essence of it, I suppose, is denial, isn't it? I it mean, is. if one wanted to use a a semi-psychological or cultural term which is that there are obvious facts in terms of the shift of manufacturing of energy, of power the fact that most of the western countries are heavily indebted um, profound, almost insolvent many of them Um, these are facts and yet against that background of changed actuality there's a persistent retreat into denial sort of denial through fantasy which makes it, which makes it more dangerous, yes. um,
1: in in many ways, and you know, um, and and that denial is shared by um, not just among political leaders, by by a, by a large section of the uh, commentary I mean, people writing editorials um, in in the major newspapers or or. Uh, people uh, writing opinion columns, uh, they, they are still using the same language of uh, mm. Western supremacy, mm. uh, which looks more and more uh, ridiculous by the day.
0: Mm. Well, I mean, how many of us have read things in newspapers saying, well, it's good what India's doing, a but can't they be quicker? Can't they catch up with us more quickly? I mean, here we are kind of basking in the sunlight of perpetual wealth. Um, this doesn't look quite like that. Now, <laughs> uh, but up to 2007, absolutely up till 2007, it was practically impossible to get uh, a hearing for the kind of I'd, kind of history. I mean, there were people producing the history, yeah. but it, they weren't getting much of a hearing for it, the kind of history that you're producing. No, I think that's right. Um, I mean, it's very, it was very difficult to um,
1: argue, and, and, and obviously I'd been writing uh, back then that uh, you know there was there was another world coming into being. Yeah. On, uh, not so far from you and
0: uh, and one that had existed a couple of hundred years one ago.
1: that had existed and mm-hmm. there were these imaginations and and subjectivities uh, in in and out there which had their own histories who had looked at the world who had experienced uh, history in a different way and had uh, other ideas about their future and uh, those ideas involved view as well. Um, but there was a kind of, there has been a kind of blindness to mm. all that. Um, so the
0: paradox is that the anti-imperialist and anti-colonialist movements of the whole of the twentieth century didn't really shift this, this, in the Western countries.
1: They, they did not. Partly, they challenged it. They, they challenged they, it. They, 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 they challenged yeah. it politically. But mm. um, in in many cases, those post-colonial uh, uh, endeavours were, were were failures. And spectacularly so in, in some instances, which invited yet again um, mm. the attitudes of mm. pity and, and mm. uh, condescension, condescension. condescension. That, uh, you know, here uh, you've declared a free nation state after great fanfare, after great uh, struggles, and there you are, uh, back to being a basket case. Um, so that also, I think, created um, uh, again these, or oh, helped encourage a sort of new imperialist uh, <coughs> attitudes that maybe we can go out there and um, teach the natives the virtues of free trade and, and humane governance all over again. Mm. Um, so I think the post-colonial uh, era, in, in some sense, in in the way the post-colonial era began, I think we probably have seen the end of that. I mean, mm. we're, we're into some, some other era. Um, I, I, I'd not like to call it post-post-colonial era. Mm. But yeah. um, I think the Arab Spring was the clearest um, indication of that in, in many ways that we've kind of we've suddenly moved on uh, from that and there's a there's a there's a strange new world now appearing before our eyes and you know it'd be hard to find our um, certainly using the same old uh, guidebooks and directions that we've been given by 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 the by by newspaper by our newspapers and our think tanks and our uh, our, our our sort of television anchors uh, i think we would be very lost in this in this
0: new world uh we'll Open it up in a moment but if if you had to try and summarize in a in a few minutes um, uh, what was the i don 't mean a simple lesson because it may be that no simple lesson can be drawn from this in some ways tragic narrative but if if there was one if there was one thought that you had writing the book um, which you would want people to apply when they read the book, what would it be?
1: I think um, it's the way in which the nation state finally became the main idea that most people in Asia, I think it's safe to say almost everyone, every, every um, major uh, country or elites in all major Asian countries adopted for themselves in order to match the power of the West. And that has proved to be uh, I think the most uh, tragic um, idea um, in, in, in the history of Asia in the last hundred years in the, in the sense that the nation state with its particular origins in Europe presupposing uh, more or less homogenous population, mm. uh, you know, clearly defined territories in the nation state, let's not forget uh, was created after a whole lot of violence and bloodshed here. Absolutely. Um, and it, 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 which continued late into the um, 20th century. A uh, mm. lot of uh, ethnic cleansing, a lot of bloody suppression of minorities. And to adopt that idea for societies which had been traditionally multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-religious for centuries and centuries has been um, a, a disaster i mean leaving aside all the other problems that the nation state brings in its wake but um, the political idea of the nation state uh, for countries like india and china but the of course the tragic side of it that they were people were forced into embracing and adopting mm-hmm. that because that seemed to me that seemed to them the uh, the, the best kind of guarantee against repeated violations by by, by the West and, and by uh, the West's soldiers and, and, and merchants and, um, and, and diplomats. Mm-hmm. Um, and in ad- adopting that they basically um, in, in created um, you know, potential for any number of um, uh, uh,
0: tragedies and calamities in the mm-hmm. future. Thank you very much. Well, um, What I'm going to suggest now is that we open it up more broadly. There are people uh, around you all with roving mics what I'm going to suggest is that we take questions in threes and that each person, when they ask their question, could announce who they are. I mean, uh, that just helps me to remember. <laughs> um, and we'll, I, I will then ask Tancas <coughs> to reply or respond to each of, uh, uh, each of those in threes. Um, and we'll carry that on till eight o'clock. So you've got forty-five minutes. Um, there's, uh, let me see, gentleman at the back, and one f- here in a red. And uh, um, let me see. Yeah, I saw you first. Yeah. So it's one at the front. So we've got three people. So the gentleman at the back, what would you like to uh, yeah. raise?
2: My name is Sarkar. I've lived in this country for 50 years. Uh, only the reason I'm. My question is two sharp One, One is can the Britain or the Western countries claim credit to improve the genetic pool of Chinese and Indians by killing them off? <laughs> That's the one. And second is.
1: Uh, I assume oh, this is ironical. Uh.
2: No, it's serious. I'm pretty serious. Because I've seen famine in Calcutta in 1942 the five million people died in the streets of Calcutta and the second thing is second question is on 15th of August a um, few years ago uh, what 35 years ago I was I went to Calcutta Cathedral and I saw a name one is ICS he's a victimist and he dictates subject races fairly I thought I found had to find out what Wikimist is and then I send both of my sons to Winchester and Cambridge. I wonder whether they will fulfill my, so that they can return the favor to the natives.
0: Thank you. This uh, The gentleman in the red.
3: I was one, uh, my name is Jason. I'm from uh, Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a teacher. Um, I was wondering, uh, Sir Misha, if you could comment on um, the East's rise of the mirroring of their use of things that are normally deemed Western. So for example, Western, the amounts of oil, for example, that we use in the West, or technology and communications that we use in the West. For example, Marshall McLuhan commented on um, how the East tries really, or has tried really diligently in the past 50, 50 years, 100 years, to really mirror the communication style of the West, using much more electricity, the internet, for example, all sorts of technologies. I was wondering if you could comment more on that.
0: We've got one more in the front, and then I'll take some from upstairs.
4: Thanks, I'm Usman. Um, I just wanted to ask you about um, the kind of idea that many of these thinkers had of the West being kind of materially ahead and on the other hand, the East having its own kind of cultural distinctiveness. But at the same time, that thought is, I mean, is there a contradiction or tension between the universalism of that thought and this kind of almost self-orientalizing aspect of Eastern values or whatever? And do you think that, like, is there a legacy of this and when we hear about people talking about Islamic finance, or Asian values, or is what we're seeing today something different?
1: I think it's it's a it's a complicated issue in the sense, obviously, a lot of uh, the ideas people like Tagore had about their own traditions were borrowed, were taken uh, from the scholarship that had emerged in uh, in Europe, in in Germany, in the first instance, about India. Um, and the knowledge about Indian philosophy about Indian religions so it wasn't a uh, it's certainly true in the case of um, Tagore uh, it wasn't a direct absorption of uh, Indian tradition it was definitely mediated um, which raises the question what did he do with that uh, I think but I think he did something very interesting which is that he used that particular tradition and he, was, he, was, he conducted a dialogue with the tradition within Europe itself Mind you in you know, a Germany uh, Germany's interest or, or German scholars' interest in India or Indian philosophy was uh, not just incidental or, or an accident of history it was very much a response to what was happening in France with the French enlightenment the French Revolution. they were trying to construct an alternative narrative for themselves and, and for for, uh, for for Germany um, and Tagore in in opening up a dialogue, was seeking a resource an intellectual resource with which he could counter this these sort of new ideas um, about industrial civilization about modern civilization so i think that uh, argument that he was simply that he had simply borrowed this yeah. stuff from uh, oriental oriental scholars based in europe uh, it's not that doesn't invalidate what he was trying to do uh, there might have been a bit of self orientalizing but i think we have to move away from you know those kinds of paradigms, and paradigms where uh, you know the word Orientalism or or Orientalizing becomes uh, you know something something you should not be doing or something to stay away from. Um, it, it, I think it was a very it was a very fruitful um, exchange that he was that he that he that he had with that and counterposing you know notions of uh, spirituality or Asian values. You know, deriving, delving deep into Confucian traditions. Again, it very much depends on who's doing it. You know, w- once a Chinese state starts doing it, once 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 a once a state that actually calls itself communist uh, indulges mostly in in, uh, in in sort of capitalist practices and claims, uh, you know, to be inspired by or claims certainly claims to be drawing from Confucian in asking for a harmonious society. I think we've, you know, every reason to be suspicious of that. But it doesn't invalidate uh, this particular critical tradition of Confucianism or of any number of uh, Asian traditions one can think of as a kind of uh, intellectual intellectual resource. Um, The other question, which was about...
0: uh, Communications. communications. Communication. Sorry, the question that the gentleman asked there uh, was about the adoption by non-Western societies of Western means of communication was that the principal aspect, or more than that? Yeah,
5: how Western communication,
0: Western society, so energy use, for example, oil sands in Canada. I just because yeah. some people might not have heard that the the, the the questioner is saying not only means of communication, but also types of energy source that are being adopted in non-Western countries on a kind of reproducing those in Western countries. Yeah.
1: In every, every respect, I mean, you know, once you, this is something, this is the discovery uh, so many of the people I write about make that it's not possible to borrow a single thing from the West. It's not possible to borrow, uh, say, better guns or, or better uh, ammunition or even, uh, you know, sort of new military skills. Uh, uh, it, you had to, you had to buy into the whole package. And so, whether it's communications, whether it's oil, um, this is something you have to do. if you're going to catch up, if you're going to be uh, a, a sort of a country that is going to fulfill this promise it has held out to its you know 2.4 billion people in both India and China, this promise of bringing them up to the level of uh, middle-class consumers in Europe and America then you have to do all these things, go looking for um, oil companies to buy in Canada, which they've just done successfully earlier this week, um, which, is a, which is, I think, a huge step, uh, which, of course, someone like Liang Chichai would have completely approved of. Here is a state-controlled company that goes into North America. It was rebuffed uh, six years ago by the Americans. Now it's found the Canadians' eager customers uh, there, and you become a competitor to ExxonMobil, um, this is uh, this is the game. You know, they realise they have to play now.
0: The question is saying: Has the demand for these kinds of things come from the bottom up or the top down? Or I think it's more complicated that, especially in a place like
1: um, like China, where uh, the party and the state derives so much of its legitimacy from. Uh, appearing to meet the material demands of its of its populations and uh, offering them this sort of utopia of you know essentially urbanization uh, modernization of moving people from the villages to um, to the cities um, so they they're very much sold on this model mind you they were also sold on this model when they were uh, officially communist uh, that's 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 part of the again part of the whole package um,
0: we have three, three speakers up, up uh, above. The gentleman at the end there is the first.
6: I'm just trying to follow your, the drift of your argument. 20th century was dominated by communism a, a universalistic ideology born in the West versus nationalism, which is again an arbitrary creation of the West. Now, In that fight, self-evidently nationalism won. But in its wake, it has created genocide. Nationalism has been redefined to such an extent as in countries like Sri Lanka, for instance. It has led to genocide of one section of the community by another, and same thing in Africa. Now, of course, the capital wants globalization, but it is throwing up contradictions even far greater than the ones we witnessed in the giant Titanic struggle between nationalism and communism where do you think we should go now, you know, you, if you reject nationalism, what other motivational force there in the world that you can mobilise people to resist the tyranny of the West, thank you
0: Thank you, and there are two uh, one at the, at
7: the, at the back in the, uh, very. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed your spot with um, Niall Ferguson uh, how, how 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 however um we on the, the, the left should be able to have adult arguments with people on the right and i'll i'll give you an, an instance uh in the two or three through three chapters on empire in on india in in empire niall, niall ferguson's love of india comes through i i w- w- went to a lecture by a A renowned, Guardian loved historian, um, on her forthcoming work on Macaulay, and not one syllable of love for India came through her talk. So, I what I'm saying is beware the Guardian intelligentsia bearing gifts. Just as uh, the 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 LSE should should have been be beware of Gaddafi bearing gifts. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, wait 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 j- just one one more. Yeah, are are you yes yes one one qu- question? Yes, okay. Are you a, a third worldist or an or a one nation? And I'm speaking metaphorically, anti-imperialist.
0: Thank you. Uh, and there's the lady sitting.
6: Here.
5: Hi. Thank um, you. I'm Tanvi. Um, I, um, all these years that I've lived in England, I've complained about how, my question relates to the similar thing, complained about how the student syllabus doesn't include uh, Britain's imperialist past. And now from your article I hear that it is going to be included, but written by Niall Ferguson. <laughs> and as a parent, I'm very concerned, and I'm wondering what can, what can we do to stop this.
0: Okay. Pankish. Um, I
1: wish I had an answer to that, um, but I think uh, to 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 take the questions um, in the way in the order they were asked, um, it's 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 very difficult to you know suddenly come up uh, with an alternative to this whole um, idea of this extremely influential. Idea of the nation-state at this point in history, uh, as you say, is used to mobilise large populations, you know, bring bring them around a shared, um, however artificial, a shared identity, uh, a flag, uh, a government with clearly defined borders. But there are ways in which we can conceive of, um, you know, more relaxed notions of sovereignty, uh, particularly in, in Extremely conflict-ridden zones like uh, South Asia, for instance, where um, so much of our um, sort of energies and resources have gone into fighting battles over often over territory, um, India and China too. So if we could, if we could sort of make even small steps towards uh, solving some of these problems that are. Caused by um, hardline nation-state nationalisms, we would have made, we would have made some progress, some progress there. Um, but I think uh, we are moving away in the age of uh, globalization from this sort of reality which used to exist and, and, and is growing uh, in, in, in some sense weaker by the day of large populations who can be around the idea of nationalism because a lot of people in those populations feel extremely uh, left behind by the economic growth many of their compatriots in the same populations have enjoyed, are enjoying. So there are new reservoirs of discontent appearing in national populations, uh, whether it's India or China. Look at the number of protests there every year. Uh, the social unrest indeed uh, turning into uh, extremely violent movements in, in, in places like, places like India. Um, so the old uh, idea of the unitary nation state uh, with its well organized and patriotic population I think it 's sort of over now. I think we are looking at new paradigms we're looking at new conflicts opening up within nation state and new challenges opening up. Uh, to to nation states internally, um, it's very it's very hard to see where this will all where this will all end, but uh, we we certainly kind of moving away from that from that older no- notion of it. Um, regarding the man with the killer apps, um, I I I think I've I sort of I feel. Uh, that again, I mean, going back to what I said earlier, that I think it's not personalities, really, uh, people people like him, who are important so much as the larger culture that they embody, um, the larger culture of debate and discussion and and, and argument, and I think that, that's something uh, which has shown um, serious signs of degeneration, um, if. if I can be allowed that word, in um, in, the last, in the last 10, 15 years, where people um, who are essentially uh, demanding wars, creative destruction in various parts of the world, completely unmindful of the violence and the suffering and, and destruction they would cause in these places, um, have, enjoy such respectability. I mean, we, in the last 20th century, the 20th century is full of cautionary tales of intellectuals, people who make a living through (laughs) writing, through thinking, lending their prestige, lending their um, uh, sort of moral uh, reputations to ghastly political projects. Uh, This was was seen most clearly in communist countries um, where any number of uh, uh, intellectuals were happy to um, justify murder, mass murder in many cases. To see that happening in the so-called free world has been uh, you know, some of the more depressing and, and demoralizing uh, spectacles of, of, of the last uh, few decades. Obviously some of that went on in the, in the Cold War too where many people turned a blind eye to the hot wars that were being fought in, in, in various parts of the world. Not only a blind eye was simply to them in many, many instances. Uh, but now in this globalized, interconnected world, um, to assume those kinds of postures to call for uh, war, to, to, to call for a new <coughs> imperium, uh, I, 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 just find that, uh, I just find that astonishing that not just the fact that there, that there exists uh, such people, but they, they enjoy uh, a kind of prestige and reputation that uh, intellectuals should not really have, or people, people who, people who, um, who, who basically have a fundamental belief in violence as as a way to essentially create political realities. This is what uh, we were faulting communist intellectuals for all the time, for for for, for, for believing in um, for violence as a as a as a way to um, uh, a functioning state or or. Uh, or a functioning economy this is, this is the reason why we demonise we stigmatise Mao Zedong or any number of people uh, why have we suddenly made this belief again respectable
0: is, is something that's deeply puzzling and, and baffling thank you, I'm going to take another three there's one person been waiting upset. so we've got two more down here the gentleman here uh, has got his hand up and one, one more and uh, at the back, thank you uh, but to begin with Ah. Been up, up, up
4: there. My name is uh, Nitin Mehta. It, I- it is true that colonization was no more than a theft and a rape of a country and its people. It cannot be justified on any grounds. However, Pankaj, your condemnation of colonization and the imperialists you see everywhere does not convince me. You can't see anything wrong with the lack of democracy, fanaticism, the wholesale repression of people's rights, and a concerted attempt to turn the clock back in many decolonized countries. Most countries have been free now for over 50 years. It is time to stop blaming the colonialists for all our ills. Except for India, uh, as notable exception, true freedom eludes most countries, yet you have never acknowledged India's uh, uh, achievements, and you condemn condemn the country regularly in your articles. It is also a fallacy to believe that the imperialists only brought things to the colonized countries. India was an ancient civilization which had made progress in science, mathematics, It was uh, very surprising to hear the gentleman there saying Western communications. I'm sorry, what's Western communications? I could say India invented the concept of zero and mathematics. So every communication is sort of Western. So what I would like to say is, uh, Pankaj, I do believe that this country has moved on from being an imperial power. It is a free country. Some people will talk about their imperial past. It is a free and fair country where you can express your your views, I can mine. And I think I don't see any... Uh, uh, conspiracies
5: that you see.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, Pangas will reply. We've got two more. gentlemen. The gentleman
5: there. Good evening. I'm Shintaro. I am from Japan. Uh, and um, I'm an investment banker trading bonds. And uh, I feel very... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> ...interested and uh, very of the, the blindness and the tragic journey. Uh, I have uh, experienced the subprime uh, in my workplace. Uh, seeing this uh, national crisis uh, of, uh, of the sovereign debt, uh, and on the other side, I believe Japan was very efficient economy 400 years before. Uh, but however, I have to work hard to live and with my family, so I have mm-hmm. to do the best and follow this this big wave for my day-to-day life. So my question is uh, regarding the, the big change happening right now. Uh, with this uh, new paradigm of uh, the poverty and the social unrest. uh, Do you think we need to just wait this to happen, or what should we do from from our day-to-day ideas and and also belief that what should we follow?
0: Thank you, and there's a speaker at the back who's also been waiting for a while.
2: (laughs)
3: Uh, Would you like to say a little bit more about Japan? I think you said it was central Mm -hmm. to the story Mm -hmm. Um, from many points of view apart from the military, Tsushima and Singapore and so on, one could really say that uh, Japan was a serious obstacle to the remaking of Asia Thank you, uh, Pankaj
1: Yes um, Japan uh, is really, as I said, crucial um, to the story, not just to the neighbors, um, I should have actually started with that, to its immediate neighbors, but also to people um, in extremely geographically remote places like uh, Egypt and Turkey, who were looking up to Japan in the late 19th century, as a model to be admired as a nation state that had been, as a country that had been uh, broken into by Western power and had been forced to modernize, and it was doing that uh, very rapidly, and um, successful enough to actually beat China in 1895 uh, demand uh, equality from other western powers and then finally in 1905 it beats Russia and this this is how the book begins, uh, enormous uh, surge of pride in uh, the accomplishment what other people saw as a fellow Asiatic country defeating a, a major white power Um, And from that point onwards, a lot of people, a lot of, in fact, many of the people that I describe in the book actually travel to Tokyo and become, um, in in some sense, disciples of Japanese modernity, how uh, Japan has managed to modernize and also hold on to some of its traditions, have an emperor and at the same time have a constitution. Um, have a very very strong constitution. In fact, the constitution was something a lot of um, other Asians were obsessed with, and thought this was a secret to Japan's success. A lot of Asians who were suffering under um, despotisms of, of various sort. Uh, but then uh, there's a the uh, twist in the story where Japan, uh, in the process of becoming a strong nation state, realizes that it needs resources. From the Asian ma- mainland, that's just too small a country to sustain uh, for, for to sustain its sort of rapid rapid growth and its rapid population growth, um, and it sort of begins to develop these very strong um, imperialist ambitions, essentially through through to to sort of edge out uh, Europeans from the, from the parts of Asia they dominate, and to grab those parts for themselves and that finally, to to cut a very long story short, leads to the invasion of China. There are several other invasions and and colonization before that happens of course but then in the 1930s the major war with China is fought. So that becomes that that whole particular conversion that feeling of solidarity with Japan but Japan also encourages uh, some very senior politicians and writers and intellectuals in Japan encourage this feeling of pan-Asianism, form associations where many, many uh, Asians are invited and encouraged to settle in Japan uh, and carry on political activities there. That turns into this imperial uh, adventure. And so a lot of these people who have been looking out to Japan are cruelly disappointed by this. So in that sense uh, what the gentleman said about it becoming an obstacle to Asia is, is very true to certainly pan Asia. But at the same time uh, let's not forget that uh, without Japan, without Japan's intervention in the Second World War uh, we might have seen, we probably uh, the European empires there might have stayed on for a couple more decades or three more decades. It was really Japanese power that basically ended european domination of asia during the second world war it was an extremely brutal affair uh, tens of millions of people died in that but i think in the end what happened was that uh, it was shown to the natives that european power is finished and the europeans did try to come back but this time the natives many of whom had been trained by the by the japanese um, a lot of local nationalisms had been been encouraged by the Japanese uh, military and many politicians and that they were back there Um, they had formed parties, political parties uh, often mass movements and that the returning European powers simply could not deal with Mm -hmm. the fact of these uh, very you know, strong um, nationalist movements
0: all across Asia. They tried. They tried to hold on. And that, just, uh, I mean, the wars in Southeast Asia, I suppose, were the were the primary uh, beginning with the French. Absolutely. The primary expression of them trying to come back and hang on, or reestablish themselves. Re-establishment. Th- then,
1: of course, there were the Dutch in uh, yeah, Indonesia, as well, yeah. uh, who were the first ones to be uh, to be to be thrown out. And then the French tried, and then the French uh, venture in uh, Indochina was then disastrously uh, extended by the United States, but that also had to end at some point. Uh, it became impossible, really, to, to you know, recreate European power in, in, in quite the same way there in Asia. So Japan, at one hand, may have uh, destroyed the chances of a, of a larger Asian conflagration, which, mind you, which was always a slightly idealistic and impractical idea to begin with. But it also really was instrumental in the liberation of Asia uh, from, from, uh, from Western imperialism. Um, what was the, I actually didn't. The, the question in the middle was. Uh, the question
0: on. Yes. Do you want to repeat your question? Yes. So sorry. Yes. I mean, I, if I can repeat, is this right? Do we have to just wait for events to unfold, or is there some change that can be encouraged now?
2: Exactly.
0: Okay. For the um, well, the kinds of conflicts. I mean, do we have to wait for these kinds of conflicts and difficulties to emerge, or is there something that could be done now which would be what constructive? And I wish I
1: wish I had an answer to that um, because these these conflicts have such have had such long histories. Uh, you know, for. To make interventions at this at this late hour, it's you know it's like being uh, it's like being a it's like being at a fire station. Uh, the major fire is raging, and you're being asked to you know go up there and, and, and put out this fire. But it's it's practically impossible. You know you've just got one engine. Um, so it's I think it's it's some of these some of these conflicts uh, which have been in the making for a long time. The, the conflicts over resources, for instance. I just cannot see how. They can be stopped or or, or uh, prevented because unless you you know have a major turning point in the history of the world, which is which never happens, uh, let's not even dream about that, where we radically revise all our all our notions of economic development or political uh, organization. Uh, but I don't think we are, people are people ever enter into such you know, radical revisions of their entire Way of being uh, political or or, or economic. Um,
0: n- another th- three. I've got two already, and a, th- a gentleman here. So that makes three from downstairs. Starting with the with the speaker at the back, and uh, then the.
3: Do you see uh, regionalism within India, within India and China increasing? We're seeing it in Europe, after all. Uh, look at Spain. Look at the tensions within this country now, and a referendum shortly on. Uh, Scottish independence, but I make the point about India, particularly you've seen the decline of Congress, the rise of the regional parties, tensions between the states over water, and then in China obviously you've got the ethnic uh, problems around the edges, and indeed in Burma too, with people like the Karen and so on. The, the, the nation state as a concept, as a straitjacket, I mean people are bursting out of it all over. But the second and related point isn't this, again, that so much of this is basically an imperial inheritance. There are distinguished historians around. Uh, let's forget Neil Ferguson, and look at James Barr and the Near East, and you see the problems the French and the British created in the Middle or Near East with their mandates, Syria and Iraq, drawing lines in the sand, and basically we're still paying for that now. And the only way seemingly to keep those countries together, Syria and Iraq, were with dictators. What's going to happen now?
0: Thank you, and uh, speaker at the end.
1: Taking off from your point about uh, how the West, how uh, a lot of post-colonial states have adopted certain values and principles from the West, perhaps blindly, like the idea of the autonomous individual without calibrating the context of it. Um, Well, maybe these ideas are not like of equality, freedom and the powers of reason, etc. Now, when we're aware of the fact that they've become so associated with the West, while rethinking our institutions, we still may want to engage with them, not blindly, but strategically in some way. And you know, for that reason, how important do you think it is to deconstruct this idea of you know equality, freedom being inherently Western, so that when post-colonial states engage with them in rebuilding their institutions, they're not they don't seem like they're automatically indebted to the West or that they're becoming Western in some sense.
0: Thank you, and gentleman uh, at the front. Yeah, thank you, Alicia
8: Pungach. My. As I put in this way, India having massive human resource where most of the intellectuals and generation is migrating to Western countries uh, to find some space over there. It's, it's a kind of brain drain. And we are losing it. Uh, of course, we are making an impact, uh, our remark on global arena, uh, that we have a huge ma- human resource. But I feel we are losing some kind of opportunities as as I speak now in India. Now there is a huge opportunity of foreign, uh, FDI in retail. Uh, if you take, we are losing some kind of opportunities due to the politics played by played internally. Uh, how how are we going to address these kind of issues? See, uh, we can make more impact by uh, by allowing the. Uh, where Western market to enter into Indian market and we can expand in that way we can ma- we can make more impact on global world, global market
0: thank you pankesh
8: um, I think the whole
1: question let me let me start with the um, lady here. the whole question of um, certain ideals being uh, western in origin as it were, and that uh, we need, we need not disregard them simply because they happen to come to us from the West at a particular time in our respective histories. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I don't actually think that you know, ideas of freedom or, or equality or, or dignity, there's anything particularly Western about them. Um, that they belong to you know, different, all, all, all the many parts of the world all the many cultures and and, uh, intellectual uh, political traditions. Um, So in terms of, you know, how do we rethink our relationship with these, um, we have to sort of think about specific situations. Uh, For instance, if you're thinking of people living in tribal areas in India where they have lived in these very dense forests for centuries and centuries and evolved certain lifestyles. I think for them, the idea of the individual consumer and producer, the man who you know wears a T-shirt and goes to work for Google and, and drinks Coca-Cola, is completely alien. And they don't want to be that person. Um, and yet they are being forced into becoming that person. Uh, they are being driven out of their... Um, uh, Sort of traditional habitats, uh, because the land they live in, the forest they live in, uh, harbour uh, incredible wealth of uh, commodities and 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 uh, which are which are greatly in demand in the rest of the world. So we have to resettle them in in the in the in the, in the, in the sort of jargon that is used, and that seems to me a real loss. Is that we cannot acknowledge uh, that these people have certain traditions and lifestyles which may not coincide perfectly with the ideas that are cherished in the modern world at large about uh, ways of deportment, uh, you know, professionalizing our lives and, and, and working in large cities and all of these things that they don't want to be that um, and they are that we may be able to you know, within a, within a large nation-state like India, have these different values in play um I think that, for me is, is, is sort of rethinking about these about these notions, uh, about these ideas. Um I think the other uh subject you mentioned about the the nation state and, and regionalism, that is I mean that that is a that is a, that is now becoming a serious problem, um which Goes back to what we were discussing earlier about the, the strains, uh, the stresses are uh, beginning to show in this always slightly very rickety model of the nation-state that it is unable to contain um, the <coughs> aspirations and and various desires, especially in the age of globalization, because they've been fed and they've been stalked in this in this particular era uh, a great deal. You know whether through um, uh, Know, bringing huge amounts of foreign investment or, or or allowing for fDI in retail or or uh, any of those things, I mean what it has done is created a culture of aspiration and, and a culture of expectation and uh, people not being able to fulfill the the desires that have been given to them means that they are going to look for political redress and, and I think one of the manifestations of that discontentment is. Regionalism and uh, you know desire for separate states, or so sometimes, in some cases, if you're an ethnic minority, for outright secessionism, um, which is the case in uh, Tibet, for instance, or um, or, or, or Xinjiang, or um, or, or uh, Kashmir, or the northeastern northeastern states. I, so I, I think those um, those those strains are going to those those divisions are going to deepen and not uh, not heal because. They've been now put under great stress by an ideology which which basically does not respect uh, national borders, which you know circulates its fantasies of the good life indiscriminately across uh, you know diverse populations, and at the same time weakens uh, the authority of states, weakens the authorities of governments, uh, so you know creating scope for greater regionalism and, and and sort of almost you know. Uh, secessionism of of, of
0: (laughs) so I guess one of the paradoxes we could end on is um, that this latest uh, um, western project of globalization is itself undoing some of the forms of statehood that were adopted in other parts of the world as a protection against the west so globalization you see as I mean one of the ironies is that it's been celebrated as a form of western triumph but your analysis in the book and elsewhere is that it's extremely ambivalent. Absolutely. I think it's it's because it, it creates, uh, it sort of,
1: it basically reduces what it asks uh, national governments or national states to do is become facilitators for uh, businessmen and investors, uh, create business friendly climates across their respective uh, uh, countries. And this immediately brings these governments or states, whether they are elected or unelected in the case of China, into conflict with local populations, most of whom are not receiving the benefits of uh, economic growth or benefits of globalization and uh, so sets up sort of conflicts within these uh, within these countries internally and brings into question the whole legitimacy of these uh, of these particular states. So the state is being weakened, not in the way people originally thought, people like Thomas Friedman, that, mm, you know... Uh,
0: the flat world.
1: The flat world. But the state is being weakened by political uh, pressures from within, by the kind of social unrest, and it's unable to respond to them, and is increasingly resorting to, uh, <coughs> to violence um, in, order to, in order to deal with that kind of unrest.
0: Well, thank you very much on that... Um, again I think uh, cautionary note we'll end. Can I mention before we thank Pankaj for his engagement with the audience that copies of Pankaj's book and by accident some of mine uh, are are, uh, available to be purchased um, outside uh, at the back uh, as you go out and if any people want to sign them Pankaj and I will be happy to do so. Uh, uh, um, w- 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 but I think now I've learned an immense amount. My thoughts have been stirred by what Pankesh has said. So I'm very happy to, um, to thank him for what he's given us tonight.